Hi, I'm Patrick Hollick, and you're listening to another episode of The Love Show. Hello, all. Now, um, <clears throat> in the past, I've uh, I used Facebook uh, video to, to broadcast um, some uh, fiddle practices. And, um, well, I, I'm, I'm going to just play a few tunes. And, um, well, uh, let's see. Over a 4th of July weekend, co-founder of Wikipedia, Larry Sanger, had asked users to protest social media. Okay, get ready. July 4th and July 5th, what I want you to do is to not participate in any of the big centralized social media networks except to do this thing, which is to share your, uh, your displeasure, to say that you are on strike, to encourage your friends to do the same, and um, also sign the Declaration of Digital Independence, which is uh, something that I've, I've written that, that uh, it explains the, the problems and uh, lays out a solution according to which we own our own data and we contribute to a, uh, a common pool. Uh, and it, it, isn't, it, it tears down the silos and makes it possible for right. different apps to talk to each other. He said in an interview, social media companies like Facebook and Twitter were abusing their power and violating users' privacy and security. He criticized executives at Silicon Valley like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg for being too controlling. I reached out to Nicole Carlos, writer from Salon, about this protest, and she had some good insights about his argument on decentralization. Basically, I was wondering what you think the risk of companies owning and selling data was and what do you think the consequences are for users? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, first of all, the biggest risk is a loss in trust with consumers. And I mean, as we've seen over the last couple of years, it's really there's been a lack of transparency from bigger tech companies about what data they have from consumers and how they're using that. And the the biggest case, an example of how things could go really wrong was obviously with Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest risk. And I think it's just kind of also the notion of like a person's information being the commodity. In essence, people are the commodity then. They're not really the consumers with bigger tech companies. Mm -hmm. Sanger said that he was bothered by the restrictions on free speech. Are we better off? with the social media landscape that has no limits on what a person can post. What are your thoughts on that? I've reported a lot on the controversy between Alex Jones and him being censored from YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And so I've read a lot and reported on how the parents of the children who died in the Sandy Hook massacre, Mm -hmm. how, you know, their lives have changed because of these conspiracy theories trolling the internet that were perpetuated by Alex Jones and how that language caused death threats right. and just completely offended their life. Several families from the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre are suing Jones for defamation. He has claimed the school shooting was a hoax. I mean, I think that these big tech companies are private companies, so they have the right to censor what they want on their platforms. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it 
boils down to. But I, I mean, I can understand the counter argument that this could perhaps be a dangerous territory where there's more censorship online, but also, you know, there's a fine line between what you can say and then protecting hate speech, essentially. Right. Do you feel like Jones should have been banned? Yes, I do. Yeah. He's pretty intense. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You wrote a bit about Sanger's claim that this issue is bipartisan. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so when I spoke to him, that was really what stuck out to me the most is that he was really trying to have his strike be relatable to both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. So kind of touching on data privacy with the left and then censorship and free speech with the right. And obviously it was really symbolic that he was doing this on the 4th of July Mm -hmm. in a time when our country is very polarized politically. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he's a libertarian, so obviously advocating for a decentralized internet. I would think that people, they were going to participate in the strike. I, I felt like it probably what maybe hindered the success is how it was supposed to be bipartisan mm-hmm. since they were those issues that he was promoting the data privacy and free speech and censorship are both very polarized issues right. on both ends of the political spectrum. Did you participate in the strike? I said that I like unintentionally did because I was enjoying my 4th of July and just not on social media. (laughs) (laughs) I was opposite. I posted a lot of fireworks. (laughs) Is there any data to see about like if it was a success or what the numbers were? Did you do any follow up on finding out what had happened that day? I didn't do any follow up. No, it seems like it was pretty uneventful. I didn't really see Larry tweet about how successful it was. And when I spoke to him, he was, you know, not sure, like, how it would really play out. I'm proposing a global, uh, non-ideological strike, which could end up being the biggest strike in history. But he did get a lot of media coverage before it. Yeah, I saw. I saw. Oh, was he was on all yeah. the networks, pretty much, wasn't he? Was he on CNN and Fox, or where was he? I saw him on some one of those. Yeah, I think he was on a couple of those mm-hmm. shows. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think it's really interesting. And what I wrote about in my article as well, how it just is another example of how Silicon Valley and, you know, tech influencers are not all in agreement over a lot of issues anymore, and especially a lot of hot button issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that is really interesting as well. Where do you see it all going? I'm always fascinated by it. Like, I don't know if it's harming or helpful or what this whole social world we're living in. What do you think it looks like mm-hmm. in five years, you know? <laughs> I feel like it I just mean, can't be I, any louder, uh, but I could be wrong, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, I really haven't thought about where it's going to go because I think there has been so many surprises in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like, you know, five, 10 years ago loved Facebook and loved Twitter. And I think there was a lot of trust mm-hmm. from the consumer side in Silicon Valley and with these big tech companies and a lot of idolizing them and what they were doing. And now it's like completely flipped and they're kind of seen as these villains now. So it will be interesting to see what happens. I mean, definitely from a policy level, 
it is a pretty bipartisan effort to mm-hmm. regulate big tech companies. Right. And it's like the one issue that the Republicans and Democrats can really unite on right now. And obviously we saw that last year with the Senate hearings with Mark Zuckerberg and those are fascinating. Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah, I thought those are fascinating. <laughs> and it showed kind of how out of touch everyone was, especially with their questions. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. It seemed like they just had come off of a rock or something when they were talking to Mark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, <laughs> I mean, it definitely provided some insight into how they understand and, and comprehend social media, which clearly it showed there was a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. And to their defense, if Facebook is being used for political ads and has the power to influence an election, there needs to be some you know, better education mm-hmm. on both ends. Did you see that article about the, the woman from Google that was caught on tape talking about making sure that Trump isn't reelected through the Google algorithms? It just it hit I'm about actually, a week or two weeks ago. It was pretty fascinating. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't see that, so I can't comment on it. But yeah. That's, um, <laughs> Are you such a journalist? You can't comment on it. I like that. What are you working on now? I cover all different feeds. I cover tech, but also science and health. And a lot of what I write is actually through a feminist lens. Uh And I've been reporting a lot on climate change and marine life and how that's all connected as well. So amazing. I'm kind of in a, yeah, a little bit of like an in between stories place. So. That's you know, fine, Monday right? morning, kind of figuring out yeah, <laughs> what the week is going to look like. Well, we're really happy to talk to you, and thanks for making time to talk to us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you for having me. We speak to Ethan Zuckerman about his 2017 article titled Decentralized Social Networks Sound Great, Too Bad They'll Never Work. Lifting just a small bit of his article, he stated, The power of giant platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter leads to problems ranging from the threat of government-ordered censorship to more subtle algorithmic biases in the curation of content users consume. If hearing that leads you to believe there's a lot to digest with this topic, there certainly is. And we really enjoy getting into this subject with our guest today. Hello, this is Ethan. So I guess basically I loved your article and I've been interested in this topic for a minute. So I just wanted to ask you, going back to your article, a few questions about it. Sure, go for it. It started how interconnected our web activities can be and, you know, the danger of upsetting the Facebooks and the Twitter. Where do you think we are now with that? Well, look, I think we're in a position of platform near monopoly. Mm-hmm. I think that Facebook with WhatsApp and Instagram has an enormous share of social media activity. I think the fact that Google and YouTube are, are one and the same is incredibly powerful. But I think the truth is any platform that has half a billion users by itself already has an enormous concentration. Mm-hmm. And in general, I would hope that social media would be more scaled to the size of human societies than it is to the size of these platforms. It's not really possible 
for people to feel like they are a member of or in charge of something with a billion users. And I really think that looking for ways to build more decentralized networks is a worthy goal even though it's incredibly difficult to do so. You had mentioned that you looked into like the systems back in 17, Mastodon and Blockstack. Have you continued to kind of look into their efforts and have you seen anything different with them? Yeah, absolutely. So we did this work in 2017 to really ask the question, was a decentralized social network possible? And what we ended up finding was that Actually, the technology is quite advanced. It's certainly possible to build robust decentralized networks. The trick is that they have not had terrific adoption. So Mastodon is actually not a bad example of this. I followed up on the essay that you're reading by looking at sort of the growth on Mastodon about six months afterwards. And what was really interesting about that was that Mastodon had grown quite significantly, but it had really grown only in one place, in Japan. Huh. And it had grown with a, a very specific user population. It had grown with fans of a type of anime art called Lolly, which is sexually transgressive art that depicts underage people. So wow. it's not child pornography as normally understood. It's drawings of young people in sexualized settings. Mm -hmm. And near as I could tell, when I sort of wrote about it at that point, what happened was Twitter had stopped allowing lolly content on. And so a lot of people had switched to Mastodon. Huh. And while that sounds a little gross, that's kind of how you'd like alternative social networks to work, right? Right. You've got a social network that says, sorry, we're not going to allow this content. People find a different platform to live and work on. And then because Mastodon is a federated platform, you had some people saying, okay, we'll share content with the lolly people. And then we had other people saying, uh, no, thanks. We're not going to share with those folks. Mm. What's been interesting is that the real innovation around social networks the last few years has been around content that's been blocked from other platforms. So folk like Gab.ai have been basically creating Twitter for Nazis. And wow. they've been doing fairly innovative, fairly interesting things. They're actually now talking about moving to the Mastodon software. So we wrote that paper in 2017 really asking a, a technical question. How hard was it to build one of these decentralized social networks? Mm -hmm. Our answer was, that's not the problem. The problem is, can you get anybody to use it? And the answer to, can you get anybody to use it at that point was only if they don't have any other options. Mm -hmm. If you have people who are getting chased off of other platforms, they might use alternative decentralized platforms. But these platforms are simply so powerful that there's so many costs to moving away from them. So a lot of my work these days is trying to figure out, can we move to decentralized futures without moving entirely away from the centralized past? Can we maintain some of that backwards compatibility, but move forward into a decentralized future? Mm -hmm.
And do you do you feel like that's a possibility? Well, so it, it, two ideas around that. One is I think we need software that helps you interact with a bunch of different social networks in the same place. So right now, if you are on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and YouTube, you've got different apps for all of those on your phone. And that doesn't necessarily make any sense. It might make a lot more sense for you simply to have a social media browser where everything shows up in a feed that you control in a single place. Mm -hmm. So we started building that. We started building something called Gobo. It's up at gobo.social. It lets you integrate Twitter, Mastodon, Facebook. We're starting to make it work with some other social networks. And it gives you control essentially over what shows up in your feed. You Mm -hmm. can decide, I'd like to see uh, more serious content, block the silly stuff. Or you can say, you know, I'm in a mode to be silly, block the serious stuff. You can ask it to add in content uh, from different political points of view. Um, One of the most popular features is... um, changing the gender balance of your feed. If you feel like you're listening mostly to dudes, you can shift that and it will start selectively silencing people that it thinks are male. So there's lots of interesting possibilities with it. The real implication of it, the real interesting piece of it in my mind is that this could be the sort of tool that might make it a whole lot easier for people to join lots of little social networks. Mm -hmm. Right now, the notion of of building a new competitive social network is really difficult because you basically have to pull someone's time away from Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. In the future, it would be really great if someone said, why don't you join this social network just for our small town? And we are going to block people who aren't in our small town. You know, we're only going to be open to those people and we're going to talk really mostly about local issues. That's totally non-viable unless you have that ability to put a lot of social networks together in the same place. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to build the technology for that. The second thing that we've been working on is this question of what would it be like to have public media start building social media. So we don't really have proper public media in the United States. We have voluntary media, but it has very, very little government support. Mm -hmm. But in a place like Britain, where you've got the BBC supported by license fees, right now you're producing television and radio media, and that's fine, but those are probably not the mediums of the future. Maybe what you actually want to do is create spaces where people can have civically helpful, productive conversations. Maybe a space where people who disagree with each other politically are introduced to one another and interact in a respectful, moderated environment. That's really, really different from uh, how social networks work today. Mm-hmm. And one possible way to build these things would be essentially asking those people who are currently responsible for public media networks to start working on and building out these spaces. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big ideas that, that I've been working on sort of coming out of that paper that we wrote. Uh-huh. And so let me just say, 
I'm super sympathetic to what Larry has to say. Like, I think there's all sorts of reasons why boycotting social networks is a realistic, is, is an understandable thing to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to do anything. Right. I think you can't just complain about these things. I think you have to start building some alternatives. And that's where I'm trying to go in my own work is to start experimenting with different models, different business models, different structural models of what building more responsible social networks might look like. Right. Did you follow up on Larry's quest about any of the data? I haven't seen anything about what the numbers were like or if anyone honored it. I got to be honest. I was in Venice with my partner on Uh, July 4th. I uh was not thinking about social media boycotts. I was was posting uh, fireworks, (laughs) so I wasn't part of that. Yeah, so I really was not following it. To be honest with you, I hadn't heard about this until... I heard that you were doing a show on it. I don't think it's a bad idea, but this does sound like probably a a pretty modest impact the first round. Yeah. You know, I just think that, I think social networks are essentially an inevitable outcome Mm -hmm. of networking people. People want to be social. They want to interact with one another. If you look back at the history of social media, email lists actually precede the invention of the internet. You have people sort of sending email lists, which are probably the the most basic form of social media, while there are single machine email systems at MIT in 1965. Wow. So this is just the most basic human impetus, which is to find some way to have group discussions Mm -hmm. uh, in these spaces. So they're not going to go away. Right. And and so we can either work to make them better or work to build alternatives to them. But trying to destroy them or trying to sort of pretend that somehow they're going to disappear, that to me feels deeply unrealistic. The root problem that I see is that they have collected all of our data in silos that they control, right? So Facebook has a silo, Twitter has a silo, Instagram, and so forth. They're, they can't talk with each other, right? And they act like the data that they hold on to is theirs. That's the root problem. And that generates a whole bunch of other problems. That, so, for example, first of all, um, the, they, as you said, sell our data to the highest bidder. Yes. Um, what makes that possible is that um, the data is not encrypted, right? They don't want it to be encrypted because then they wouldn't actually be able to, they wouldn't be able to use it, <laughs> right. right? So Larry is someone who has tried really hard to build alternative systems. I would love to see him join the cause on this one. Mm-hmm. What does he think social media network should look like. I've got my ideas. I just outlined some to you. Yes. I'd love to see lots of people thinking about what social media should look like in the future. But, you know, a boycott is not the logical first step. Right. It's, it seems a little radical and not thought out. It's just too simple. Mm-hmm. I think that boycotts are powerful when they demonstrate that there's a group of people who share a common view and can organize to sort of assert their power. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, one of the most effective boycotts of the last 
10 years has been the sleeping giants boycott that's gone after Breitbart advertisers Mm -hmm. and has helped pull thousands of advertisers away from Breitbart and in the process uh, really crippled that network's effectiveness. The problem with a boycott is that a lame boycott suggests you don't really have your act together and you don't really have the power. Right. And that would be my fear with this. It's sort of like, you know, the petition that only gets 70 signatures. It either says that what you're petitioning for is not a very popular idea or that you're just not organized enough to really get your act together around it. Absolutely. Where can we find some of your research and read you? Because I think your article is amazing and I want listeners to be able to find what you're working on. Sure. EthanZuckerman.com is my personal site and a lot of the work ends up on that. Mm -hmm. I would say that if you're interested in this topic, you might want to look for a piece that I wrote called Six or Seven Things Social Media Can Do for Democracy which is basically an outline of engineering principles that I'd love to see people building social networks around. I really want to thank you for your time, Ethan. It's been an honor to have you on, and I really like your head on these subjects. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for reaching out yeah, to me. Keep I really up appreciate the, uh, it. And keep up the amazing work. It's just great. Thanks so much. I'll look forward to being in touch in the future. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Nicole and Ethan for being guests today and Brooke Jenkins for her wonderful edit. I'd like to take this time to thank all of our patrons for all your support. If you have time, please give us a review at Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Thanks again for listening to The Love Show. Okay, so this is, this is the Collier's jig. <laughs>